We are um, going to be talking about one of my favorite festivals. Uh, obviously, we've been uh, celebrating it here since last night, and um, there is so much to talk about with this festival that uh, we need more than one night to talk about it. So I'm glad that there's so many evenings that we'll have to do so. But I want to give you kind of a rundown of it here tonight and really kind of connect it to Christ so that you can see, you know, that song, they were perfect, Revelation song, when it talks about him being the living waters, you're going to see why he's called that tonight. You're also going to see, I, I really hope and pray that your eyes will be open to wonders because God's word, I was just showing uh, some friends here uh, about Ron, our tour guide, and how he talked about the name of Yeshua. When he said Yeshua, he just he had to stop. And he just said, oh, that, that name. That name and just the weight it bears. And he talked about, the only, he said, the only thing I can compare it to is when you go into a synagogue and you take out those Torah scrolls and you put them in your hand. And I would wager that there isn't any of us here who would probably, or very few of us anyway, that would take the Torah scrolls, stick them in our hand, and feel like we had the weight of the world in our hands, that we had something so special and so dear. That's the Word of God. That is the wonder that I want you to see tonight. That these aren't just words. These are living words. These are life. These are living waters. And that is my goal for you tonight. That's, that's my prayer for you tonight. So let's begin here. And what we see, we've, we've talked about uh, some of these things. But Leviticus 23, verse 43, talks about the Feast of Tabernacles. And it, it explains a little bit about it by saying that your generation may know that I made the children of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Now, prior to this, we, we talked about these other verses last night, but this is, why do you do this? Why did he tell you to do this? He says, so that your generations may know that I made the children of Israel dwell in booths. You're to remember this. This morning, we listened to Daniel Joseph um, when he had his live Shabbat service, and that was one of the things he's talking about. Why would you want to remember such a terrible thing? They were being led out into a wilderness. But God's presence was going with them. God's presence, what they're to remember is that even among being in the wilderness, God was their sukkah, their protection, their providence, their all. And he's saying, remember that when the children of Israel, they, they dwelt in booths as well. That word booth there is Sukkot. It's plural. Okay, So we have a sukkah out there, the singular. Sukkot is the plural. But anyway, this is a week-long festival with an eighth day added on to it. We talked about that last night, so I'm not going to get into it again here tonight. But my point that I want you to pick up here is that they're to remember that God delivered them. This is a festival of deliverance. Okay, So the Feast of Tabernacles, we know it starts uh, here on Tishri 15. But what is it called? We call it Sukkot, but it has so many other names. 
It is called the Feast of Nations. And we're going to talk more about that as we go. But the reason being is because this is the festival that Gentiles are welcomed into their sukkah. In Israel, this is a great time. I would love to go to Israel. I've never been there during the time of Sukkot. But Gentiles are welcomed in at times into a Jewish sukkah. No other time would this be allowed. But this is one reason it's called the Feast of Nations. You'll, you'll understand why later. But they are to be brought in. Now I want you to just kind of keep this in the back of your mind, what Romans tells us about this too. It says salvation is of the Jews. Right? Yeah, it, it wasn't, salvation was not of the Gentiles. Salvation was of the Jews. We got to join them. They did not join us. So keep that in mind as we talk about this. Now, there are 70 nations, and, and the Jews believe that when the Tower of Babel happened, that there were 70 nations that the word or that the languages that went out, and that's the beginning of the 70 nations. So then at Mount Sinai, when the Ten Commandments were given, his word went out and it was like sparks, tongues of fire. If you've heard me talk about the tongues of fire message, when the Holy Spirit was given in Acts chapter 2, that wasn't a new thing to many of them. They were very familiar with tongues of fire because it happened at Mount Sinai. And the scriptures tell us this. Okay, I'm not going to get into that tonight. But the point is, is when the word went out, it, they believe, they say that it went out to the 70 nations. So anyway, because of that as well, we see that there are 70 bulls sacrificed during this festival. By the end of these eight days, there will have been 70 bulls that have been offered on the altar in a seven-day festival. And as Daniel Joseph was talking about this morning that I thought was very significant, when we talk about in the New Testament how Yeshua said, you know, how, many, how many times am I supposed to forgive somebody? He says 70 times 7. Any Jew, their mind would have gone to Sukkot. They knew what the 70 was. They knew what the 7 is. And it, they knew that this is a festival of deliverance, a festival of forgiveness. How many times am I supposed to forgive? He's saying, well, you remember at Sukkot? You know how that happens? 70 bulls are sacrificed seven times. That's how many you're, you're supposed to do this forever. There's some significances here. Romans 2, verses 9 through 10 says, But unto them that are contentious, and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath. Now wait a minute. Jesus is truth, right? That's what he is. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And it says here that we're to obey the truth. And this is a New Testament verse. I, I, you mean we're supposed to obey things? I thought we would just have to believe and that's good enough. No, we are to obey the truth. You see this, we, we talk about the gospel being free, grace being free. Absolutely it is, but it comes with a great cost. Grace is free, but it comes with a cost. This is why James said faith without works is dead. But anyway, going on, it says, Upon every soul of man that does evil, of the Jew first and also the Gentile, but glory, honor, and peace to every man that does good. First to the Jew and then to the Gentile. 
What I want you to catch is kind of what I was saying before, is that we have been grafted into their tree. Romans says this, what advantage is there in being a Jew? I think it's chapter 4. What advantage is there in being a Jew? Much in every way. Why? He says, because they have been entrusted with the very words of God. Now, if they've been entrusted with the word of God, do you think maybe we should be looking at what they've been doing with it? Because God entrusted it to them. And somehow, Gentiles decided to say, no, we'll take it from here. Yet, I don't see scripture saying that. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't some Jews who have missed the boat. I'm not saying that at all. But what I am saying is scripture says, what advantage is there? Much in every way they have been entrusted with the word of God. Theirs are the patriarchs. Theirs are the covenants. Theirs the divine glory. And from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ who is forever praised. Amen. That's the scriptures. And so there's something about this that I think we need to look at in wonder. Look at this here in Romans 11, 15. For if they're, the Jew, their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? I love this verse because it's basically saying this, guys, that when you go and read Romans 10, it talks about that the Jews have experienced a hardening. I believe it's chapter 10. The Jews have experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in. And he goes on to say that they have been given over to disobedience. But why? He says, so that the grace might be offered to the Gentile. And as you look in this, I'm going to make this your homework assignment, you go and you look and it basically is saying this, now he's given the Gentiles this gospel and we are supposed to be making the Jews envious of it. And he says, he goes on then to finish by saying, God has bound all men over to disobedience in order that he may have mercy on them all. He's not done with the Jew. Gentiles haven't replaced the Jew. There's one covenant, always has been one covenant. And we, the nations, are being gathered to them to that covenant, not to them, but to the covenant, to, to Yeshua, okay? But notice this, their rejection was reconciliation for the world. That means when they were rejected, it was a good thing for you. But note, it doesn't stop there. It says, what will their acceptance be? Life from the dead. So remember that the, Gentile, or the Jews have been rejected only in part and only for a time until the full number of Gentiles comes in. So when the until is done and they are accepted, what does that mean? Life from the dead. You might put it this way, the resurrection of the dead. And I find this fascinating as you start and you look in what Romans says, is that in the end times, there are going to be many Jews who are going to realize they missed the Messiah. Zechariah talks about it. He says that they will look on him who, whom they pierced and mourn for him as one mourns from, as from an only son. 
they are going to turn, they're going to realize Yeshua is the Mashiach, the Messiah. And when they do, they will be accepted. And when they are accepted, what does that mean? That means really good things for you. Life from the dead. So very important. But anyway, called Feast of Nations because of this, that the nations are invited in. And so, uh, like I said, the strangers, it doesn't have to be somebody they know. An absolute stranger is welcomed into their sukkah. And I believe, now remember, this is commanded to be done before Jesus came. Because this is foreshadowing something. It's foreshadowing that the Gentiles are going to be welcomed in. That's the picture that we are seeing here. So, um, there's more blessings to, to come from this. We've been invited in, but when they are accepted, there's going to be even more to, to rejoice about. So you've kind of seen this before since we've been talking about, you know, uh, the Feast of Trumpets, and we talked about Day of Atonement. But just to get perspective again here, that we have these 30 days called Il, of Elul prior to the Feast of Trumpets, Yom Teruah. And that begins on the first of the month. Then you have these 10 days of awe that led you to the Day of Atonement on the fifth or the 10th day. And then you have five days later where we were at now, where we see the Feast of Sukkot or Tabernacles, which begins a seven-day festival with an eighth day added on to it. And that's what this is looking like. But what you can see is that we've had all this time of repentance, 30 days of Elul, 10 days of awe, the Day of Atonement, all of this time has been like, ah, oh, heavy. Repentance, self-reflection. And now we get to this. And it commands us in the book of Leviticus to rejoice. Because... Ultimately, I believe what's going on here is what will their acceptance be? Life from the dead, and it's going to be a time to rejoice. That this is going to be a time where God is going to become a sukkah for us, and we will be dwelling with him. I think that's the picture that you're going to see. Day of Atonement, Judgment Day. And when judge after judgment, what happens? You read that in the book of Revelation. After judgment comes... Lust living, living with him. That's the picture of the sukkah. And you're going to see that more as we go here tonight. Um, here's one of the verses. Isaiah 4 verse 5 prophesies that this is what's going to happen. Those who are left in Zion who remain in Jerusalem will be called holy. All who are recorded among the living in Jerusalem. The Lord will wash away the filth of the women of Zion. He will cleanse the blood stains from Jerusalem by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of fire. Then the Lord will create over all of Mount Zion and over those who assemble there. Now keep in mind, Mount Zion, that's Yerushalayim, Jerusalem. It says, all of those who assemble there, a cloud of smoke by day and a glow of flaming fire by night. Over all the glory will be a canopy. Here is a prophecy saying that God is going to become a canopy 
a protection for us. You know, there's all kinds of talk about, are you pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib, you know, pan-trib, it'll all pan out in the end. What are you? <laughs> hmm? Well, bottom line is, do you know that the Jews, now I'm not saying any of these are right, but what I'm saying is, do you know that many of the Jews, they have a different view of the rapture than the modern church today? Okay, our view is this. Hey, we're walking along. Hey, we're up in the clouds. Yay, it's over. And, you know, you're either saved from persecution or you're not. That's not what they see. And I have found it fascinating that as I look through Scripture in the Old Testament, I can't find any description of the rapture we talk about today. And the more I've studied Scripture, the more I realize that if it isn't in the Old and it's only in the new, you're misunderstanding something. Because it isn't in the new if it isn't in the old. Jesus dying on the cross, that was in the old. Talked about it all the time. Resurrection of the dead, talked about it. And it, was, it was all there. But when I see this idea that we talk about, when we read you know, 2 Thessalonians or 1 Thessalonians, when it talks about in, a mo in 1 Corinthians 15, in a flash and the twinkling in the eye, we're going to be caught up with the Lord in the air at the sound of the last trumpet. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm saying that's true. I'm saying that will happen. I'm just saying you're misunderstanding possibly what that means. Because when we go to the Old Testament, you don't find it anywhere. Oh, you can find analogies like, oh, uh, Elisha caught up, or Enoch as well, you know, as well. Just walk with God. He was gone. Elisha was caught up in this uh, chariot of fire. Elijah, I mean. But there's no verse that really connects to that. What the Jews see is this, is that there's going to be a gathering of the elect from the four corners of the earth, which is, by the way, what Revelation talks about. Just your other homework assignment is going to be go do a word concordance search on gather and scatter. How God has scattered Israel. And he's going to, in the end times, gather them back. And what's he going to do? Where does he take them? Does he just gather them to hold them in his arms? No. He gathers them and he takes them to Zion. Why would he gather them in Zion? Well, so that he can be a sukkah for them. A canopy for them. A protection to deliver them. And what's going to happen while they're delivered? All the nations are going to come up against them. And that's prophesied, old and new. And then all the nations come up against them, and what's going to happen? The word of God, Yeshua, goes out and slaughters them in an Armageddon valley. Armageddon battle. This is the picture we're seeing for Sukkot. Deliverance. Protection. That's the picture of the Exodus as well. It's deliverance. Well, we're going to move on here into Exodus 23, verses 14 and 16, to continue talking about this being called the Feast of Nations, or the Feast of Ingathering. And I believe Daniel Joseph talked about this this morning as well, but this is a time to gather in the fruit, the harvest. Well, guys, he's not talking... I mean, he is, in the literal sense, talking about taking in your harvest, but that is a symbol and a picture of the spiritual sense, which is talking about you. You are the harvest. That's you. 
Okay? It says, Three times thou shalt keep a feast unto me in the year. So there are three times where you had to come up to Jerusalem to celebrate a festival. Here they are. Thou shalt keep the feast of unleavened bread. This is called Passover, basically. And it is done in the spring during the barley harvest. Thou shalt eat unleavened bread seven days as I command thee in the time appointed in the month of Abib, but basically our March or April. For in it thou camest out from Egypt, and none shall appear before me empty. And, so number two, the second one is the feast of harvest, the first fruits of thy labors. The, this is called Pentecost. Pentecost happened at the time of the wheat harvest which thou hast sown in the field, and the feast of ingathering, which is Sukkot, the one we're doing right now. This is the fall festival when it was the grape harvest. Now this is significant. Note all three festivals where you are to come to Yerushalayim are harvests. Barley, wheat, and grape. Harvests are a picture of the resurrection and the, the ingathering of God, gathering the elect from the four corners of the earth. Maybe you could call it the rapture. That we are to be gathered to Zion. So it's not an accident that you have to go to Jerusalem during the harvest festivals. It goes on, which is at the in the end of the year, when thou hast gathered in thy labors out of the field. So, as we continue, I want you to note a little difference between harvests here as well. Another homework assignment can be this. Just go look at grape harvests. The grape harvest is always a picture of judgment and God's wrath. He's going to gather the grapes and tread the wine press, you know, in his fury. Kind of an end of the world judgment day scene. But barley, it's interesting how you harvest barley. Barley is winnowed. You know how you basically take a big wide fork and you throw it up in the air and then the chaff is blown away by the wind while the rest of it remains. Wheat is different. Wheat has to kind of be broken and stomped on to get the kernel out of the, the whatever you call that, you farmers. You know what I mean. The head, maybe? So I, I, Well, I was just a kid. I know, but I called it wheat. <laughs> and grapes, however, grapes, they are crushed. And so I, I think that almost really speaks for itself here. But I think that that's what we're reading about when we read about grape harvest so much in Scripture. Revelation 14 says this, And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the, uh, the cloud, Thrust in thy sickle and reap, he was told. For the time has come for thee to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. Now notice that there are two harvests taking place here. I just read the first one. The angel is told, harvest the earth, take in your sickle, reap. Okay? It's, it's been harvested. 
And another angel came out from the altar, which had power over fire, and cried with a loud cry to him that had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in thy sharp sickle and gather thee clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. So you've got two of them taking place. A harvest, the first one, I believe, is the harvest of the believers. Where what's going to happen to them? I believe they're going to be taken to Zion. And then the second one is the grapes. And where are they going to go? They're going to be set down into the valley where they're about to be trampled. And the blood is going to go as high as the horse's bridle. So this is kind of a picture that we can see symbolically here in end times when we look at the harvests. And the grape harvest is always associated with tabernacles. So when you see that talked about in Scripture, you've got to put yourself into this period, this, this season of the calendar. So it seems to be, when is the second coming going to take place, according to the book of Revelation? The grape harvest. Okay, this is just one of many verses that we can kind of show that indicate that. He's telling us when the Lord's coming back, he's going to harvest the earth. Why? Because the grapes are ready. When are grapes harvested? The Feast of Sukkot. Think about the parables that Yeshua talks about. About at the end, they're going to harvest the grain, and he, also har- and he puts it in the barn, and he also then harvests the weeds, and they're taken off to be burned. It's the same picture that we see in that parable. Let's look at some other verses that kind of back this up a little more. Isaiah 24, 13. So will it be on the earth and among the nations as when the gleanings are left after the grape harvest, they raise their voices, they shout for joy from the west, they acclaim the Lord's majesty. So, so will it be on the earth and among the nations as when gleanings are left after the grape harvest. Jeremiah 25, 30. The Lord will roar from on high. He will thunder from his holy dwelling and roar mightily against his land. He will shout like those who tread the grapes, shout against all who live on the earth. The tumult will resound to the ends of the earth, for the Lord will bring charge against the nations. He will bring judgment on all mankind and put the wicked to the sword. We're seeing judgment day being associated with grape harvest. How about Joel 3, verse 13? Swing the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, trample the grapes, for the winepress is full and the vats overflow, so great is their wickedness. This is what you read in Revelation. So, I believe these are those that are outside the sukkah, outside of the canopy of God, outside of his protection. Okay, Judgment day. Um, the other thing I want you to note is that it's called the Feast of Tabernacles. Tabernacle is a very important thing because it is... What is a tabernacle? Why was the tabernacle made? Why was it given? Well, because God always intended to live with you. That was his goal. That's what he wanted. That's why he created you. He desires to live with you. He desires that none should perish. Pentecost. I want to show you just time-wise. We know that Israel 
reaches Mount Sinai to receive the law. Now, how can we kind of know some of this stuff? Well, when do they leave Egypt? Passover. We know when Passover is. Then they go out into the wilderness. And the Bible even tells us here they camp, and here they camp, and here they camp, and it gives them all of these nights of where they camp. And we see that it's around Pentecost that they're reaching Mount Sinai. Now, the Jews do believe that, and this is what they teach, that this is when they received the law. Don't think then that it is an accident that on Pentecost, 3,000 people are saved when the Holy Spirit is given in flames of fire. And yet, on Pentecost, those thousands of years earlier at Mount Sinai, 3,000 people were killed after the flames of fire went out to the nations. Those parallels are not accidents. It's there for a reason. All right, so Pentecost happens. The Jews also teach us that it is on the Day of Atonement that Moses goes, he goes up the mountain, right? He comes down, he spends some time with them, he goes back up for another 40 days, and it's on the Day of Atonement he comes down the second time, and with him he brings the plans for the tabernacle. That's what even Hebrews tells us, that you know, God told Moses, see to it that you make everything according to the plan shown you on the mountain. So when God came down from Mount Sinai, I'd say the modern day church pretty much thinks this. When you say, what did Moses get on Mount Sinai? Everybody will tell you, the law. That's it. But that is not all he brought. He also brought the plans, the, the blueprints of the tabernacle. He brought the gospel with him as well. You see, they go hand in hand, always have, always will, until the church has separated them and said, oh, the law is bad, gospel is good. No, they're both good. Paul even said, is, what then, is the law bad? Certainly not. The law is good as, one, as long as one, one uses it properly, Timothy says. They've always been like this. So, the Day of Atonement comes down. Now, atonement is not very uh, far from tabernacles, five days apart. Tabernacles, they say, is when they started building the tabernacle, started basically obeying the plans and started to build the tabernacle. Now, this is what Jewish tradition tells us. I cannot prove to the day that that happens scripturally, but I can show you scripturally that it's the right time but it would make sense. But this is what Jews teach. Exodus 25, 8 and 9 says, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. That's the goal. That's the purpose. The tabernacle is so that God will dwell with you. Is that a good thing? Yeah. But I would say, again, you ask most people in modern day church, the purpose of the tabernacle, what was it for? Oh, all those sacrifices. All that ugliness, all that grossness. No. It's a model, a picture of heaven and of Yeshua Jesus himself. Every piece of that tabernacle is a picture of Jesus. Again, connected. Every piece. But his goal is that I may dwell among them. 
That's what he wants. God's always going to dwell with his people. That's what he wanted. Zechariah 14 says this, Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations, as when he fought in the day of battle. And his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof, forward and east and toward the west. And there shall be a great valley. And half of the mountain shall move toward the north and half of it toward the south. And it shall come to pass that every one that is left on all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall even go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Now you go and read this, guys. I'm telling you, the Mount of Olives has not been split in two from east to west yet. This is, this is a prophecy that has not been fulfilled. And so for the church today not to know what the Feast of Tabernacles is, it's going to be a wake-up call when they're supposed to go celebrate it. We're supposed to be doing this. He commanded it back in Leviticus 23, and we talked about this last night, as an ordinance forever. Not just until Yeshua comes, forever. Even after the Lord comes back. Go read it, Zechariah 14. I want you to read the whole chapter. We're going to continue on here. But notice... That his feet are coming and standing on the Mount of Olives. This is his return. And it says anybody that doesn't come up and celebrate this festival, you're not going to have any rain. It shall be that those who will not come up to all the families of the earth unto Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and even upon them shall be no rain. And if the family of Egypt go not up and come not that have no rain, there shall be the plague wherewith the Lord will smite the heathen that come not up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. This shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all nations that come not up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Can you see why this is called the Feast of Nations? Because the scriptures say all nations are to celebrate this. This isn't even just a Jewish thing. Yeah? On your previous slide it said all the nations that come up against Israel. Why is that discrepancy? Well, here's what I think is, and, and I don't understand this fully, but in the picture of what I've been describing, it seems to me that at this point, this is, we have the gathering the, that takes people to Mount Zion. They're going to be in Jerusalem then the ungodly are all going to come up against us. Then there's an Armageddon battle. But that doesn't wipe out the entire earth. If you look in Revelation, there's two of these battles that take place with a thousand-year period in between them. And they are not the same battle because it tells us that the first one, it says the beast and the false prophet after the, uh, the first Armageddon battle are thrown into the lake of fire. Then you have a thousand years, and then it says that the dragon is cast into the lake of fire where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. So they're two separate battles. So what I see happening, and, and I don't understand it all, again, we're dealing with future stuff that we're just going to have to put on the shelf so that when things you know happen, you understand it or whatever, but... The best that I can make sense in my mind is that, is that we're there, the nations come up, 
there's a battle, and then it's almost like they are put into subjection. And during that millennial reign period, you've got these nations, and they're going to have to come up. And if they don't, there's no reign. But in the meantime, we're just fine and, and you know happy as can be. But these people, I don't understand what that world is going to be like. I think our world here on Mount Zion is going to be pretty amazing. Okay, we're, we're not going to have to worry about not getting rain or plagues. or I think this is where there will be no tear, there will be no sorrow, that kind of thing. But the ungodly, or for whatever reason, they're still there. I don't understand. I've said this verse many times, Zechariah 8.23. In the end times, I think we're there. In the end times, ten Gentiles will go and grab onto the hem of one Jew by the hem of his robe, literally the tzitzit, seat, which is a picture of the commandments of God, grab onto the hem of his robe and say, take us with you, for we have heard that God is with you. That's what's happening right now. I am convinced of that. Prophecy being fulfilled, Zechariah 8.23. Revelation 21.3. I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people and God himself shall be with them and be their God. Can you see why this is called a festival of rejoicing? Because this is what we're celebrating, guys. Atonement has been made for us on the cross. Yeshua has covered our sins. Not just, let me rephrase that, taken away our sins. There is no greater reason for now, for us to be celebrating and having bounce houses and barbecues and fellowship. Because this is reason to rejoice. Commanded to rejoice. I love that. 2 Corinthians 5.1 For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Or 2 Peter 1.13 and 14 As long as I am in this tabernacle... To stir, up, to stir you up by putting you in remembrance, knowing that shortly I must put off this, my tabernacle, some translations say, tent, even as our Lord Jesus Christ has showed me. That this is our tent. Okay, Right now, God tabernacles with us, but we know that this even is only a foreshadowing of what's going to come. But when we celebrate Pass or Sukkot, and we have our Sukkah, and we're sleeping out in tents. This is what we should be reminded of. He's coming back, and we're going to live with Him, not in this way that we right now do in the flesh, but in a way not dimly, but face to face. I, I get excited about that. Well, and think, and think how joyous God will be because that has been his ultimate goal from the very beginning to fellowship with his believers. Mm -hmm. I mean, that ought to make you excited right there. How, yep. how awesome is God going to be when his fulfillment of what he's wanted from the beginning is done and accomplished? I, I'm getting goosebumps right now, I'll be honest with you, just even thinking about that. You know, I, I told you guys about my dream before when I saw Barnabas and, and I go and I give him this big hug. I love that man like I love my own children and I was so excited and at peace. Oh, rejoice, rejoice. Uh, anyway. Um, 
Anyway, the point is, is the point of tabernacles, God wants to live with us. That's what he wants, and we should want to live with him. Um, I'm going to skip this part here for now. Let's go with this. The transfiguration, kind of interesting in, in the New Testament here. Uh, Mark 9, uh, Matthew 21, maybe? Verily I say unto you that there be some of them that stand here which shall not taste of death till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. And after six days, Yeshua taketh with him Peter and James and John, and he led them up into a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And then it goes on and it says, And Peter answered and said to Yeshua, Master, it is good for, for us to be here. And let us make three tabernacles, three Sukkots. Some translations, dwelling. Three dwellings, one for thee, one for Moses, and one for Elias, Elijah. I find it interesting that he had said that what is it to you that some here standing may not taste death until you see the kingdom of God coming in power. Now, because of this, some you know, thought that maybe John would never die and all of that kind of thing, but that wasn't what he was talking about. But I do find it interesting that Peter was a witness to the Lord's coming in some senses. Okay, Just maybe as a foreshadow or a picture of, I don't know. Just kind of an interesting point. But what's interesting is, is what did they seem to associate the Lord's coming with? Because they see, you know, God the Father, Elijah, Moses, they see him enveloped in glory. And what are they associating it with? <gasps> Do you want us to make Sukkot so that you can dwell with us? They're, that's what they're doing. Again, they don't understand the full picture. They're, they're misunderstanding things. But nonetheless, they're associating it with that. So let's look at this time of rejoicing here in Leviticus 23. On the 15th day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the fruit of the land, you shall keep a feast unto the Lord seven days. On the first day shall be a Sabbath. On the eighth day shall be a Sabbath. And you shall take you on the first day the boughs of goodly trees, branches of palm trees, boughs of thick trees, willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. That whole command to rejoice. Daniel Joseph talked about this morning, he talked about this, basically these four species, you know, the willows, the fruit, and all of that. And he, he talked about the, a lot of people use the lemon, and how people will pay hundreds of dollars for a lemon, because the rabbis will spend hours looking at this lemon to make sure that it, it's perfect. And he kind of talked about that, that these are the fruit of the harvest, <coughs> which says, you are the fruit of the harvest, in that we are to be examining ourselves exa at this time as well because we are to be good fruit offered as a wave offering to God. And, and he, there was more, but I, I just thought that was a good thing. So anyway, what I can see is it says this is a seven-day festival, but yet it's an eight-day thing. How? Well, they, they tag on this eighth one. It's the same way Passover has seven days, and you've got kind of an added one tagged on to it. I said last night there's all kinds of significances and parallels to Passover and Sukkot here. 
But um, I'll explain why in a moment. Here's where I think it gets good. I just wanted to kind of show you some of those symbolic things, but I want to show you how Yeshua was living this out when he came. Because Yeshua is our Passover lamb. He is our uh, atonement sacrifice. He is our sukkah. He is all of these festivals in every way, shape, and form. It isn't just this Jewish festival that's all legalistic law. No, it's Yeshua. You've you got to get that out of your head, that this is just legalism. You're misunderstanding it, if that's what you think. Here's what happened on the Feast of Sukkot. This is a command to rejoice. So I'm telling you, Jerusalem was filled with people. You've got to think of everybody in the country coming to Jerusalem because it's a command to come to Jerusalem. And they're celebrating. They all have their species. They're waving palm branches. They're doing all of these things. It is the greatest day of joy on the last and greatest day of this festival which we'll get to in a minute. But history, like Josephus, say there was about two and a half million people praising God during what's called the water libation. I loved worship here this morning, this evening, just listening to all of you guys sing, and I just thought, can you imagine two and a half million people praising God? Oh, wow. So here you got this, these candlesticks that are outside of the temple. What we see here is that there were four gold jars or whatever at the top of these things. Now, what they used for wicks, I told you this at the Feast of uh, Day of Atonement. Remember those gar the priestly garments? They would take these priestly garments that they were still holy, and so they would cut those up into strips oftentimes and use those as the wicks for the oil that was up top. And so you had these four younger priests, I guess the newbies that had to climb up. I'm not going up, you climb up. I'm too old to be up high. But anyway, you have these four young priests that were, their job was to climb up these ladders, and that's what I can't imagine doing. Um, and they had these seven-gallon buckets of oil. This is according to like Josephus and the Talmud and the Mishnah, those kind of things that giving us this information. So they would pour seven gallons of oil up there as, and use these wicks. This is why we hear Jerusalem being called light of the world. And yet it is at this festival that you are going to see that Jesus calls himself the light of the world. Not an accident that it's at this festival. John 8, 12 says, I am the light of the world. He that follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. During this festival, everybody was talking about the lighting of the candle. It's the light of the world because it could be seen for miles. And now Yeshua is saying, I'm the light of the world. You follow me, you'll never walk in darkness. Okay, I am the temple. He is all of it. So the next thing that would happen is that these priests on the last and greatest day had what was called the pouring out of the water libation. 
And did Daniel Joseph talk about this? Or we're, we were talking with somebody about this. Okay, where you had two, one was wine and one was water. One priest would pour out the water, one would pour out the wine. The wine was poured out slower than the water. And, and the Mishnah talks about this. And then they would ask God's blessing to be upon them the next year. Rain of good harvest. But they would say this blessing. But they're pouring out this water. Now, it's interesting. Water and wine. And when Yeshua is on the cross, they put a spear in him. And what comes out? Water and blood. Now, let me just explain this a little bit more. You have three groups of priests. You have those that killed the animals, the sacrificial animals. Okay? You had the water pourers and the branch carriers. These three. Well, the water and the blood aren't just poured out anywhere, or the wine. They are poured out on the altar. And this is what was sacrificed on the altar? The, the sacrifice. This is what Yeshua is a, or I should, all those sacrifices were a picture of him. And so water and wine, why would you have both be poured out on the altar? And yet this is what Jesus, on his altar of the cross, shed. So this second group of priests, these water pourers, what they did is they went out to go out the water gate, and they went to the pool of Siloam. Those of you who went to Israel with me, do you remember the pool of Siloam? It was said to have living water. And the pool of Siloam was the one that, like when we exited Hezekiah's tunnel, basically. Living water is meant to be moving water. It's not stagnant. It doesn't just sit in like a, a, a cesspool or a, um, a, a cistern or something like that. Living water is moving water. And so they had to have living water to pour out. So they would go out the water gate, go to the pool of Siloam, get this pitcher of living water. The high priest had a golden vase in which he drew the water out. And his assistant had a vase that had wine that he was just carrying. They go back to the temple. And when they get back there, they will pour both into two separate silver cups. The third group, these branch carriers, they were the ones that they would cut these huge branches, some of them 25 to 30 feet long is what the records tell us. These huge branches to wave as they would march back to the temple. Now, it is no accident that when Yeshua is riding into... Jerusalem, we see about at Passover too, but the branches are being waved. But anyway, it's a symbol of the Spirit coming into Jerusalem, they say. So those are the jobs of these priests. And here, in, from Psalm 118, this is what, in part, that they will sing as they are doing this water libation. The Lord is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. Now, some people ask me, why do you say Yeshua? Because it means something. I'm not against saying the word Jesus. I don't think it's sinful to say that or anything like that. However, Jesus doesn't mean anything. 
Yeshua means the Lord saves. Let me tell you this. Here's what's happening. When they're pouring out this water libation, they are saying this. The Lord is my strength and song. He has become Yeshuati. That T at the end is my. He's become my Shuati, my salvation. He's becoming Yeshua. In some sense, they are crying out Yeshua's name in the blessing when they're about to pour out the water libation. That's not an accident, guys. The voice of rejoicing and salvation is in the tabernacles of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord doeth valiantly. So as they're going back to the temple and pouring this out, they're reading and singing, really singing Psalm 118, talking about tabernacling and that he is my Yeshua. Yeshuati. They also will sing from Isaiah, chapter 12, verses 2 through 3, at this festival, and look what it says. Behold, God is my salvation, Yeshua. I will trust and not be afraid, for the Lord Jehovah is my strength and my song. He also has become my Yeshua, my salvation. Therefore, with joy shall ye draw water out of the wells of salvation. So... Just amazing that this is what they're singing. This is what they're saying at this time. John 7. It says, Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. Sukkot, again, that's where we're at. Now about the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and he taught. So about in the middle of the feast, he's going in and he's teaching in the temple. They're now in the verse 37. In the last day... The eighth day, that great day of the feast, Yeshua stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. What day are these priests pouring out the living water, the water libation? This day. It wouldn't surprise me at this moment. And here the scriptures are telling us on that very moment, Yeshua is telling them, I'm the living water. If you come to me, you'll never thirst again. I think that's incredible. Just like at Passover, the things that he says at the moment it happens, he's fulfilling the festival. Yeshua is fulfilling this festival in foreshadowing of when he's going to fulfill it in a very literal sense when he comes back again. Here in Isaiah 4, 5, we've looked at this before. Those who are left in Zion who remain in Jerusalem will be called holy. All who are recorded among the living in Jerusalem, the Lord will wash away the filth of the women of Zion. He will cleanse the blood stains from Jerusalem by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of fire. Then the Lord will create over all of Mount Zion and over those who assemble there a cloud of smoke by day and a glow of flaming fire by night. Over all the glory will be a canopy. Just to remind you that what we're seeing here is him being a sukkah. So, this eighth day. Remember I said it's a seven-day festival with an eighth day tagged on to it. Why is that? Well, it's a picture of a new beginning. 
You've had Sabbaths, right? Seven days, and it starts over. Every time it starts over. Every time it starts over. But one of these times, it's going to be done. And this is what I find interesting, is each day of creation models a thousand years of history. The Jews have said, many others have said. I'm not going to go through all the details of that tonight. But every day of creation, just to give you a, a sample, the first day of creation, we see God separates light and darkness. The first thousand years is dominated by Adam separating good and evil. The second day of creation, he separates waters. The second thousand years of, of history is dominated by Noah and the waters. Third day is vegetation and filling the earth. Then you have Abraham filling the earth, calling of his people. The fourth day, sun, moon, and stars. The fourth thousand years is uh, Jacob and the twelve tribes of Israel, which we see in Scripture are sun, moon, and stars, according to Joseph's dream and so on. Well, Seventh day is rest. You have then, the Jews believe it's after 6,000 years, the Lord comes back and then you have a millennial reign. But the millennial reign is only a millennial time period. What about beyond that? An eighth day, a new beginning. And that's why there is an eighth day added on to this. It says in 2 Peter 3, verse 12, looking for the, and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, because this earth is destroyed, look for a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. That's the picture we're seeing. Deuteronomy 31, And Moses commanded them, saying, At the end of every seven years, in the solemnity of the year of release, in the Feast of Tabernacles, so on this time, what's supposed to happen? When all Israel is coming to appear before the Lord thy God in the place where he shall choose, thou shalt read this law. By the way, he chose Jerusalem. So what's supposed to happen on the Feast of Tabernacles? At the end of every seven years, you're supposed to go and you're supposed to read the law, the Torah, to the people. Before all Israel in their hearing, gather the people together, men and women and children, thy stranger that is within thy gates. Remember, Feast of Tabernacles, a stranger is welcomed in. It's the gathering of nations. That they may hear, that they may learn, and fear the Lord your God, and observe to do all the words of his law. So notice that they are to do a number of things. First, hear it. But don't just be a hearer of the word, be a doer of it. Okay, hear it, learn, and do, observe. Okay, we can't just listen, you can't just hear it. This is why the church is a mess. I think we've been hearing the word of God, but we have put zero emphasis on learning it and doing it, observing it. That's why I observe the festivals. That's why our family does this. Because, you know, we were talking until midnight last night here, and one of the things that was brought up is the richness of doing these festivals. And I said, anybody, and I mean anybody who has started doing these things will tell you about the richness. And I said, well, just look at this as an example. We have been inundated in God's word and fellowship and godliness the last 24 hours or better. Compare that to any church harvest festival you've been in in the last 50 years. 
Okay? I'm not trying to put the church down. I'm trying to lift up observing what God has asked us to do. You take any Passover meal and you compare that to any Easter. Blow it out of the water. You take any Hanukkah and compare it to Christmas. It'll blow it out of the water in godliness and God-centeredness. There's a richness. Again, I'm not putting the church down. I'm lifting up the blessings of what God has asked us to do. It's beautiful. But anyway, um, I, I love this. I, I'm just going to keep going here. I, I'm running out of time. I'm going to maybe take another eight minutes or so, ten minutes maybe. Yeah, I know. So, Isaiah 2, chapter, chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. He's speaking about end times and he says this, It shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in all nations. Remember the Feast of Nations. All nations shall flow unto it. God is going to bring us, strangers, everybody to Jerusalem. And many people shall go and say, Come ye and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. Jerusalem, Zion. And he will do what? Teach us his ways, and we will walk in his paths. In other words, do what he says. For out of Zion shall go forth the law. What did he tell them that they were supposed to do? On the Feast of Tabernacles, you gather so that you will hear the law, learn it, and do it. That's what he told you to do on the Feast of Tabernacles. And now Isaiah is saying, when the Lord comes back in the fulfillment of Tabernacles, what is he going to do? He's going to teach you the law so that he's going to clear up all of our stupidity, all of our arguments, all of our doctrinal dissertations and doctrinal disagreements. He's going to clear that all up because the law is going to go out from Zion from the very mouth of God himself. I can't wait. You guys keep asking all these questions I can't answer. You're going to get answers. That's exciting. And this is what Isaiah is supposed to happen in the last days on this festival. The word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge among the nations. He shall rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares. A house of Jacob come ye and let us walk in the light of the Lord. He's going to straighten up the mess that we have made in the churches, in our own lives, in our own philosophies. So, Micah adds this. In the last days it shall come to pass that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established in the top of the mountains and it shall be exalted above the hills and people shall flow unto it. That's basically what Isaiah just said, isn't it? Same time, in the last days. And many nations shall come, the feast of ingathering, the feast of nations, and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us his ways, and we will walk in his paths, for the law, Torah, shall go forth of Zion. 
oh, but wait, uh, that, that can't be because God got rid of the law, right? When Yeshua came, didn't he got rid of it. That's not what this is saying. It's not what he says in Matthew 5, 17, 18, and 19. Yeah, isn't it? or anywhere in the New Testament. And who did he meet on the Mount of Transfiguration? Elijah and the guy that brought... The law yeah. and the prophets. It says in Matthew 17, 18, and 19, I did not come to abolish the law or the prophets. You think there's some symbolism there? Yeah. At the Mount of Transfiguration, when who did he meet? The law. The Moses law. and Elijah, and the, the law and the prophet. Yeah. It's everywhere. And guys, again, I'm not trying to attack the church. Please don't take it that way. What I'm trying to say is that Sometimes we hear something the same way so many times that we, we think we've got it figured out and we can't get out of that rut. Those blinders are there and you can't see outside of it. This is trying to kind of let you see the big picture. So, yeah, even Yeshua on, on the road to Emmaus, we've talked about this before too, but how did he prove that he was the Messiah to them? From the law and the prophets. Nehemiah 8. Again, during this same festival, what happens? All the people gather themselves together as one man into the street, feast of gathering, and was before the water gate. What, what gate did they go out? Did the priests go out for the water libation? The water gate. Okay. They spoke unto Ezra the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses. What are they supposed to do on this festival? Read the law, which the Lord had commanded to Israel upon the first day of the seventh month. So now I know what time of year we're in because the scriptures are telling me. So I'm not making this up. Nehemiah 8 is telling us this is all happening at this time that we're celebrating right now. And the goal, he brings out the law. That's what's supposed to happen. And he goes on and it says, And he read therein before the street that was before the water, the wa before the water gate, from the morning until midday. What am I complaining about keeping you guys here for an hour and a half? <laughs> okay, yeah, from morning till midday before the men and the women and those that could understand, and the ears of all the people were attentive unto the book of the law. So they read in the book of the law of God distinctly and gave the sense, in other words, explained it to them, and caused them to understand the reading. Catch this, because this is what I love about this festival above all else. They gather together, they read the law, the law goes out from Zion, they're in Jerusalem, so that they will learn understand so that they will do. Expository teaching. I thought you were going to say Expository. people were attentive part. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that too. <laughs> so, yeah. It goes on. And on the second day, they were gathered together unto Ezra the scribe, even to understand the words of the law. And they found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded by Moses, that the children of Israel should dwell in booths, Sukkot, in the feast of the seventh month. And that they should publish and proclaim in all their cities and in Jerusalem, saying, Go forth unto the mount and fetch olive branches and pine branches and myrtle branches and all of these four species 
And then it goes on also day by day from the first day unto the last day. He read in the book of the law of God and they kept the feast seven days. And on the eighth day was a solemn assembly according to the manner. Remember the first day is a, uh, a Sabbath and so is the last. So don't forget the law is God's word. Just as we've seen happening, just as Isaiah, just as Micah said was going to happen, just as Nehemiah did happen, you're going to see that Yeshua fulfills this as well. Here's uh, what I was just telling you before about somebody over there. The Torah was viewed as water. Uh, and here's kind of explains why. But it says here in Psalm 72, He shall come down like rain on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days the righteous shall flourish in abundance of peace until moon. the moon is not. He shall also have the rule from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. So basically the reason I'm bringing this up is today the church views those who, who are not bound to the law as if they're strong somehow. And those that obey the law are somehow weak. I don't see that at all. Was Jesus weak? And yet he did nothing except for keep the law. Never once went against it. Torah is going to come down like flowing water at tabernacles. This is why living water, and the Jews see that water as the law of God. They even did way back in the tabernacle. The law goes out from Zion. The water flows out and what does the water do? It purifies, it cleanses, it flourishes and blesses. That's what the law of God does when it's understood properly. Emphasis on when it's done properly. Okay? Because it can become bad. Okay? If it becomes something that you're trying to earn your salvation and it becomes something, you know, that that is a works righteous thing, evil of the devil. He twisted it. Okay. So, but anyway, after Jesus proclaims himself the living water, keep in mind this is on the last day that that happened, right? Look what happens here. John chapter 7, verse 40. Many of the people, therefore, when they heard this saying, said, Of a truth, this is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ, the Messiah, the Mashiach. But some said, Shall Christ come out of Galilee? Then answered them the Pharisees, are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed on him? But this people, who know not the law, are cursed. Hmm. Isn't that interesting? The Jews thought they knew the law better than anybody. Yeshua kept trying to correct them. Constantly. And Yeshua's going to try and fix this. So what I want you to know, just again, the Jews did not know the true law. So Jesus is going to do something else on this eighth day coming up here to fix that, or to try to help fix that. I'm going to propose to you that today the church doesn't understand the law today either, that we are very much like modern-day Pharisees. We do not understand it. We've either thrown it away or used it like the Pharisees. And Yeshua comes and he's saying, listen, this is what I mean by it. The law is for your benefit. It is a good thing. It is not for your salvation. It is 
for me to dwell with you. To show you how to live to be holy. Yes. So, Jeremiah 2.8, notice this. The priest said not, where is the Lord? And they handled the law, knew me not. Who, who, who did we just say that handled the law? And they didn't understand it. The Pharisees, the Jews of Jesus' day, they didn't get it. He says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn them out of stones, broken cisterns that can hold no water. No law. No truth. Every time Yeshua rebukes the Pharisees, every one of those is a man-made law, not something that was in, in the Scriptures themselves. Every one of them. When they're all upset that the disciples didn't wash their hands, go find that where it says that you have to in the Old Testament. It's not there. Okay? When uh, he heals people on the Sabbath. Jesus was constantly throwing it in their face. You ever ask yourself, why did he spit in the mud to make, you know, uh, to put mud? He could have just put his hand on there. He could have just said, your eyes are healed. But he spits in the mud on the Sabbath day, makes mud and sticks it on the guy's eyes to heal him. Why? Because he was a radical guy. Yeshua was. He made mud because in the Jewish law, it's not in Scripture, but it's in their law. As a matter of fact, when we were in Israel, remember uh, our Jewish guide even read it to us. After I pointed out, he said, he's right. And he read it right out of their Jewish laws. It's against the law to the Jewish law yeah, to make mud on the Sabbath. So Jesus is intently trying to say, your man-made laws are stupid, <laughs> for lack of better words. And so these priests, these Jews, these same people, where is the Lord? They that handle the law knew me not. You guys want to understand what the law is? You will never understand it without Yeshua. That's the problem with some of the Orthodox Jews. They don't understand the law. Why? Because they don't understand the living waters. You can't understand the law without Yeshua. He is the Word. He is the law. He is the Word. He is all of it. He is Torah. And without it, then that's how you get into trouble. That's the key. And by the way, remember that Zechariah 8.23 verse? In the last days, ten, ten Gentiles are going to grab onto the hem of one Jew. Any guesses who you think that Jew might be? Yeshua. They're going to grab onto the, Jew, the, the hem of one Jew. Yeshua. The tzitzit. The commandments. But anyway, I won't get off on that for now. So, John 8. Jesus went up to the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again to the temple. Okay? And this is the eighth day, by the way. We're still on the same day. And all the people came unto him. And he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they, say, they said unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be done, or that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? Where does he go? Mount of Olives. What did Micah say? What did Isaiah say? When is, where is the Lord coming back? Mount of Olives. 
Here he is on the Mount of Olives. What does Micah say he's going to do when he goes to the Mount of Olives? He's going to, the law will go out from it. What happens here? He teaches them. He teaches them the word of God so that they can understand it, learn it, so that they will follow it. And look what happens. Some people come out and they want to know. They say, hey, listen, Moses said this, but what do you say? This is our understanding, but what do you say? What did it mean? So that eighth day that Micah, Isaiah is talking about, he is living it out as a picture here. It's not an accident that it's on the eighth day that this is happening, that people are gathered to him, and he's giving the law that's going out from Jerusalem. It continues, verse 6, They which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last, and Jesus was left alone, and the woman was standing there. Um, I feel like I am missing a slide here. But I'll just fill it in. They say, Moses says this. What do you say? What does Jesus do? Leans down, writes in the dirt the names of their girlfriends, and they all take off. Right? That's what we love to joke about. But I think that there's something else that was written in there. I think there was more to that. I, people who knew the word of God. Because what he does causes them to be convicted. Now, by the way, in Nehemiah, and Daniel Joseph talked about this today too, that Nehemiah teaches the word. Two days after this, guess what happens? They fall down on their faces and are repenting and following God's commandments. They're getting rid of their foreign wives or doing all of these things. Go read that in Nehemiah. That pattern is there. That when the law goes out from Zion, it causes them to be convicted. What happens here? The law is going out from Zion. This woman comes and he explains it to them and they are convicted. And they hightail it out of there because they can't handle their conscience. Let me show you Jeremiah chapter 17, verses 13 through 14. Look what it says. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all that forsake thee shall be ashamed, and they that depart from me shall be written in the earth. Why? Because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. Here we have Jeremiah prophesying that there would be a group of people rejecting the living waters. He has just declared that day to be the living waters. And they reject him. And what does he say? Those who reject me will be written in the earth. On this very day, this is what Yeshua is doing. He's writing in the earth. Heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me, and I shall be saved, for thou art my praise. So, I think he was fulfilling scripture. I think that those Jews knew Jeremiah. I think they had already heard him call himself living waters. And now, those that reject me are going to be written in the earth. Because it's happening on that day. You guys have all heard Hosea 4, 6. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. You ever, we hear that all the time and we think that's because you don't know what you know, Genesis about creation. 
Uh, that's because you don't know what John 3.16 says or whatever, right? No. Read the whole thing. It goes on. It continues. I'm not skipping anything. Because thou hast rejected knowledge, I will also reject thee, and thou shalt be no priest to me, seeing that you have forgotten the law. Why do you have no knowledge? Because you've forgotten the law. We love to quote the first part of the verse, we just don't like to continue. You've forgotten the law of God, that's why you have no knowledge, he says. It does, yep. You need the context here. Yet this truth rubs people wrong. And that's why we need Yeshua to, to instruct us. Okay, I'm wrapping up here. I want to show you uh, what Tozer said. Have you ever noticed how much praying for revival has been going on and uh, of late? How little revival has resulted? I believe the problem is that we've been trying to substitute praying for obeying, and it simply will not work. To pray for revival while ignoring the plain precept laid down in Scripture is to waste a lot of words and get nothing for our trouble. Prayer will become effective when we stop using it as a substitute for obedience. I'm going to let that one sink in a little bit. When the law comes out from Zion... When Torah goes out from Jerusalem, remember, it isn't just to teach. It's so that you understand it and walk in it. That is what Yeshua expects of us. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. New Testament, by the way. 117 times it says that. In the New Testament? In the New Testament. So, just a couple, you know. 117 times. Wow. Hmm. That could be in all of them. I know it's 117, but it's, it's a bunch. It is a bunch. So, Hosea 9. Remember Ephraim? That's a picture of Gentiles. Genesis 49:18, possibly says that Ephraim will become a multitude of, of Gentiles, literally. Multitude of nations. That word nations is goyim, Gentiles. Anyway, it says, Ephraim shall return to Egypt and they shall eat unclean things in Assyria. What will you do in the solemn day, in the day of the feast of the Lord? Then in chapter 6, verse 3, Then shall we know if we follow on to know the Lord. And it says, He shall come to us as the rain, the latter and former rain of the earth. The latter rain, those are fall festivals. That's a picture when he talks about the, the latter rain. That's his second coming. But the question is, is what are you going to do? Hosea 9. You Gentiles that return to Egypt, they shall eat unclean things in Assyria. What will you do in the solemn day, in the day of the feast of the Lord? I think this is a challenge for us. Jeremiah 16, 19, O Lord, my strength and my fortress, my refuge in the day of affliction, the Gentiles shall come unto thee from the ends of the earth and shall say, Surely our forefathers have inherited lies, vanity, things wherein there is no profit. Shall a man make gods unto himself, and they are no gods? Therefore, behold, I will make this once cause them to, or I will this once cause them to know. 
I will cause them to know mine hand and my might, and they shall know that my name is the Lord. Guys, I truly believe with all my heart that we have inherited lies and things of vanity and of no benefit. When we do things that are not biblical, when we do things the way we want to do them rather than the way God has asked us to do them. I know that's not a popular thing to say in the world today. And, and, and again, there are going to be many people listening to this that aren't going to understand that. And they're going to think I'm really legalistic from it. All I'm saying is this. I want to challenge you to say, why do I do what I do? Can I find it in the Bible? Or am I doing this because this is the way I grew up? If you, if you don't, don't worry about what I said. Worry about what the Bible says. I'm confident you'll come out with the right answer. So, I think that's where I'm going to end here tonight. Father God, we love you so much. And we just, just pray, Lord, that you would come. Come, Lord Jesus. Set your feet on the Mount of Olives and teach us and straighten us out. For we have wandered from your word. We have wandered from the truth because of our own desires, because of uh, not knowing your word. For lack of knowledge, your people perish from, from lack of understanding that word. And God, we know that you do not want any to perish, but that you want all to come to the knowledge of the truth. And so that they may be saved. You are that truth. You are that way and you are that life. The living waters. May that living water flow out from us. May your word teach us and may your spirit give us understanding until that day you come back. We pray this in the name of Yeshua of whom we give thanks and praise for answering these prayers and for giving us life. Amen.